Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. I'm really excited to dive into that passage uh, with you today. Uh, But let me say at the start that things are going to be slightly different. I'm not sure they're going to be quite as innovative as Johnny suggested at the start, so sorry. Uh, But they're going to be a little bit different. Uh, I'm actually going to be giving over the next uh, 40 minutes or so two shorter talks. Uh, Very exciting, isn't it? I promise they're at least a tiny bit shorter. It's not a trick. And in the middle, we're going we're gonna to kind of do something completely different. We're going to watch a video from outside of our context, and then we're going to turn, and for uh, a decent time, we're going to pray, probably 10 minutes or so. We're going to have uh, little clusters of little groups of prayer uh, for something completely different. Then I'll come back, and before sending you out to your week of discipleship in this city, uh, I'll give you another even shorter, we'll see, second talk. Now, within our journey through the book of Revelation, we're spending uh, seven weeks up until Easter exploring the so-called seven letters to the churches. They are found in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. And these are seven double-edged sword-like messages spoken to, uh, by the risen Jesus to uh, be sent to seven real-life churches in first century Turkey, in those cities around western Turkey, as it would be now. And in these letters, the Alpha and Omega, the bright and morning star, the lion and the lamb, the son of God, Jesus Christ, brings his authoritative assessment of how these churches are getting on. And as we began the year teaching into and trying to bring you along with us as we think together about what it really means to be a disciple... If you remember, that is that it's someone who practices costly love for God and for people over a lifetime. We are now wanting to examine and explore and bring you along into, as we think about together, what it really means to be a church, to be a church of disciples. We want to let Jesus' words to these seven churches back then shape our church today. So that what is built here is more and more pleasing in his sight. And having begun in Ephesus last week, today we travel 35 or 40 miles or so up the Turkish coast to Smyrna. And as you will have caught during our reading, thanks Kate and the Bible again, they are having an absolutely terrible time of it. Their church is getting absolutely battered by hardship. It's peppered right throughout the passage. Jesus speaks in verse 9 about your suffering. Verse 9, your poverty. Verse 9, those opposing you. Not seen verse 9 of Revelation chapter 2 on many of your fridge magnets. Verse 10, you will suffer. Verse 10, when facing death. And remember, get yourself out of Bible theory mode and get yourself remembering that this is a real church family of real women, real men, real children that are poor, suffering and even facing martyrdom. That means being killed for following Jesus. And if we overcome and we stay true to Jesus, then those of us who stay true to him will be saved on the last day 
and in the new creation, we'll meet these men, women and children and we'll sit at their feet of their resurrection bodies and we'll hear their actual stories. These are real people and they are up against it. Now, if we ask last week's big question, are they a good church? I need to confess that by many of the external measures by which I tend to decide whether things are going quite well right now in our church, I have to say on the surface, I don't think I'd want to join these guys. It's a touch bleak, isn't it? At this point on Sunday, the mic broke for about one minute. So what I was saying is that the church in Smyrna, it seems to be pretty bleak. I'm not sure I'd want to join it. On the surface, it doesn't seem to be going very well. And yet, how important, therefore, it is to open our Bibles and see what Jesus thinks, because Jesus is not ashamed or embarrassed of the church in Smyrna. I went on to say that last week we, we saw that Jesus brings pretty much the same four themes to each of the seven churches in Revelation. I then was given a mic that worked. So back to the action. He brings these four same themes, if you remember, a fresh revelation of himself, encouragement of all that's good in their church, critique of all that's bad in their church, and a promise if they overcome, if they keep going, if they're victorious. But to the church in Smyrna, this embarrassing, humiliated, hunted, pitiful group, Jesus changes his message. His sermon outline is tweaked. There's still a fresh revelation of who he is. It says in verse 8, this is the message from the first and the last, who was dead but is now alive. There's still encouragement of all that's good. Verse 9 says, I know your poverty, but you are rich. He sees them as having spiritual wealth of overflowing spiritual resources. And if you skip to the end, there's still a promise. There's even a Brucey bonus extra second promise. Verse 10 says, if you remain faithful, I'll give you the crown of life. And verse 11, whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death, but conspicuous by its absence. This hunted, humiliated, pitiful church who you and I might want to distance ourselves from. Jesus Christ looks at them and he has no word of critique at all. There is no but. There is no call to repent or change or that little phrase he says, I have this against you. None of that. No call to turn around because they're already walking in the right direction. Absolutely brilliantly. Jesus says over them, good church. Here's the lesson of talk one. You can't judge a church by how it looks. You can't judge a church by how it feels. You can't judge a church by how it seems to be going. Here's the lesson of talk one. External measures are completely misleading when we reflect on what it means to be a Jesus-pleasing church. They're completely decisive, by the way, when we reflect on what it means to be a people-pleasing church. But when we're thinking about what it means to be a Jesus-pleasing church, it's got to be something different to the external measures. And you see this more clearly if you flick forward uh, to a very similar verse in the seventh letter to the seventh church uh, in chapter 3, a church in the city of Laodicea. Because whereas to Smyrna and the Christians there, Jesus says, I know your poverty, but you are rich. To the church in Laodicea, he says, you say I'm rich. 
I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, miserable, poor, and blind, and naked. Now, neither of these two letters are to this church. And we have to work out what is the Spirit saying to this church. But hopefully you can tell that in both of those church contexts, and therefore in ours, how it felt and how it seemed and how it looked were not accurate measures of what Jesus thought of the church. Now, we're nearly done with talk one. Very exciting, isn't it? And there are loads of ways I could apply this into us as individuals and us as a church. But I want to apply it really specifically to how we view and talk about and relate to churches and Christians around the world. See, sometimes in the Western church, we tend to think that we are going pretty well. Like it's not too difficult got loads of money in the churches, we write all of the books, Spotify is full of our songs, happy days. We tend to view ourselves as being the experts in the church stuff. But do you know that over the last hundred years or so, the global lay of the land in the church has shifted? The center of Christianity, really by any measure except money and books, has moved from the West to the east and to the global south. The percentage of people meaningfully following Jesus in the US and the UK is in still steady decline. And yet, meanwhile, the fastest growing in the church in the world, the fastest growing church in the world, does anybody know where that is, what nation that is? It's not China, but they get a mention in a minute. Iran. And what is their strategy to be endlessly persecuted, to have no buildings or property and basically no organized structure. Anybody know the second fastest growing church in the world? At least uh, when these stats were done in the last 18 months, the recent circumstances might have moved this or at least affected what it looks like. It's the church in Afghanistan. Our siblings in the global south now make up 60% of all Christians Both Africa and Latin America have more Christians than Europe. Despite persecution from the state, the biggest Christian population in the world in 2030 will be the church in China. We are not the center. We are not the experts. We are not the teachers. Could it be that the Western church, and who are we to talk about the Western church? It actually gets us off the hook if we talk about the Western church. Let's talk about our church. Could it be that we need to change our posture and start to quieten down and instead listen up? And have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And there are lots of ways that we can do that. But as talk one comes into land, here's what we're going to do now. Now what I want to do before we go is I want to recognize that uh, though it's right to listen to their stories from the persecuted church, 
Though it's right to acknowledge we don't have that particular battle in anything like the same way, I also want to send you out to your week of discipleship, acknowledging that though you aren't probably facing death this week for Christ, you do have hardship and you do have your own battles and there's no point pretending they're the same ones, we don't need to, but there's also no point pretending that they aren't battles. And actually, we each need to serve Jesus in our context and overcome the hurdles to that that there are in our context. And we can't live someone else's story and we don't need to pretend we do, but we do need to live ours and live it with cost if it's demanded. And I think we need help in our own struggles and suffering. So what I want to do is bring you quickly five quick meditations for your week flowing from Jesus' phrase in verse 9 where he says, I know. I want to point out five things that Jesus knows that can enable you to face your own hardship with courage like the church in Smyrna faced their own hardship with courage. Here's the first one, and I am proud of this theology. Number one, Jesus knows everything. He says in verse 8, I am the first and the last. This title reveals that he is all-encompassing. He's eternal. And therefore, everything that happens is within his view. The church in Smyrna, the church in Ukraine, and even the church in Birmingham is not hidden from him because he's the first and the last. You are not hidden from him. And more, none of the things that you're going through or that you will go through this week are more ultimate or definitive in your story than him because he's the first and the last. He predates your hardship. He'll outlast your hardship. He's the first and the last. He knows everything. So take heart. Don't be afraid. Keep going in your struggle. Overcome. Secondly, Jesus knows their situation. Verse 9 says, I know about your suffering and your poverty. In the last fortnight, a friend of mine and, and several people in the church as well suddenly became uh, instantly unwell and collapsed. The news came through to us late at night and it was very serious and, and in some ways it still is, though he's taken a turn for the better. It was very unclear what was going to happen. I, I guess all of us have had messages like that in our lives. You know, you get them and you're, you're, you're thrown and you're praying and you're crying and you're... Uh, then I didn't really sleep and I'm trying to do my day the next day and it was a day off for me and I wasn't seeing many people and certainly wasn't seeing anyone who knew the situation and I was in turmoil. And then in the evening, I was sent a Zoom link by this guy to say there are some people going to just get on a Zoom and pray if you want to jump on. And I came onto the Zoom and I'm in the waiting room. Johnny will let you in at some point. You're waiting there. And then he let me in and my screen just flooded with faces that I, some I knew, some I didn't know. But what bonded us and united us was that everybody knew the situation. And I tell you, just being on that call, I couldn't pray. I just felt this release of emotion and pain from being with people who knew the situation. And Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, I know. I know. And he says it to you as well. 
There are situations I don't know about. You probably wouldn't want to tell me. But he knows. Thirdly, Jesus knows their city. Maybe for them, like us at times, Jesus seems pretty distant from the actual places that they are in their week. Maybe you feel that. And wouldn't it help if we knew that Jesus had an understanding of what it's really like here? Not just in heaven, not just in Galilee, but here. Well, there's a couple of ways that commentators suggest that Jesus in these verses is playfully showing the Smyrna Christians that he really knows about their context. He says in verse 10, I'll give you the crown of life. Now, stick with this. There's gold here if we just persevere with the Bible stuff. The word for crown is not a royal crown, but it's a headdress or a garland that would be given to a winner of an athletics competition, right? And why that's interesting is in Smyrna at this very time, there was a famous athletics competition, probably the second most famous ancient world athletics competition, um, and not the one that endured. Um, But there's this famous athletics thing going on, and the winners of the events would be given this word, a crown. Could it be, I don't know, could it be that Jesus is showing them that he has an intimate knowledge of the cultural life of their city? You know, uh, a a few decades after this was written, uh, a bishop in Smyrna called Polycarp was killed in the athletic stadium for being a Christian. And can you imagine the comfort it would be to think that the stadium where you're going to be killed for Jesus is one that he actually knows about? He knows about that athletic stadium. Other commentators suggest it's not that. Actually, there's a set of hills in Smyrna that were known locally as the crown of Smyrna. And so it could be that Jesus is revealing that he has an intimate knowledge of the landscape, even, of their city. Who knows? We can ask Jesus one day and he'll probably go, no, it's just a crown. (laughs) But to be reassured that the streets where they suffer, the areas where they were arrested, were known to him, that would bring courage, wouldn't it? And the same is true of us, from Selly Oak to Small Heath. The scenes of your struggle are known to this Jesus, so you can overcome. Fourthly, penultimately, Jesus knows what's coming. Verse 10, the devil, he promises, will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for 10 days. Not the most encouraging prophetic word, uh, is it? But don't you, like me, spend a lot of your energy in life worrying about hypothetical and potential future things that might happen to you? It's called projecting or catastrophizing. And we tend to actually have to emotionally deal with and feel the weight of far more than ever actually happens to us due to a fear of all that might happen. And we fear that we won't have the resources to cope with that if it did happen. And Jesus doesn't remove their future trouble, but he reveals plainly to them what is also true for you, that Jesus has an intimate knowledge of the actual and real future troubles of his people. He knows. He knows what's coming. He knows the path that he's shepherding you along. And that raises lots of interesting Bible questions about predestination and all that jazz. But in the real world... It does mean that whatever future twist in the tale you dread, you can know that Jesus knows and he'll be there 
equipping you not with hypothetical strength for all the hypothetical troubles that you stay awake at night thinking about, but for real strength for the real troubles that will really come, whatever they may be. Jesus knows what's coming, and so he'll be there with you. Lastly, Jesus knows our enemy. Verse 9 and 10 say, I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they are Jews, but they're not, because their synagogue belongs to Satan. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. Just a clock. This is a verse that's been used and still gets used today in some quarters of the church to justify anti-Semitism. Language like a synagogue of Satan is pretty tricky. But that is outrageously irresponsible handling of the Bible, and other than being just completely evil as well. There's no justification for that from this verse. Who is speaking this verse? Jesus of Nazareth. He is Mary's son. He is an ethnic Jew. And so it's nonsensical to see this as Jesus speaking against the whole Jewish people as a whole here. Jesus is strongly critiquing this particular group in Smyrna for persecuting his church. But even the way he critiques them is to say, they say they are Jews, but they're not. He sees their behavior as not in keeping with true Judaism. I just wanted to say that because that's a verse that has been misused. But the real enemy, the real enemy behind any of the particular persecutors of the church in any country at any time, and did you know that 80% of all Christian martyrs have been killed not by uh, Jewish people or Muslim people or Hindu people, but by the state? And the real enemy behind all persecutors of the church is Verse 9, Satan. Verse 10, the devil. And I'm not going to say too much about uh, him at uh, finish time. This is the first mention of Satan in Revelation. And let's just say he does come up quite a lot. And so here's my, my promise for our Church Central preaching series. You, by the end of this series, you'll know Satan a lot better than, than you do now because he comes up a lot. So we're going to talk about him a lot. But as you head into your week... Satan is real. Spiritual attack is real. Spiritual warfare is real. And however that makes you feel, whatever our particular Western blind spots, Jesus knows that we have an enemy this week. And so he warns his church, he warns us, but more than that, he equips his church. He equips us to enable us to stand. So we do need to be aware and wise this week to the fact that we have an enemy trying to devour us this week. But also in verse 10, don't be afraid. Because Jesus knows. And he's given us everything we need. God bless you. Friends, we're done. Jesus knows, and so if we have to this week, we don't chase it, but if we have to suffer this week, let's suffer well for Jesus. And let me know if you want the video link. Let me just pray. Maybe if you have them, or, or one of them, maybe um, put a hand on your ear or your ears. As I say this verse. Uh, 
everyone who has ears must hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Lord God, I pray that you'd bless our ears, that we might be open to listening to you and your voice. I pray anything we've done this morning that needs to just be forgotten would immediately in the name of Jesus be forgotten. But may anything that is of you and your spirit land in our hearts and bear fruit 30, 60, 100 fold in our actual lives. Lord God, may we follow our great example of our, our great brother that we watched on the video. May we live for you this week. Amen.